when I think about leverage in software, I think about, are you able to solve really, really big problems without solving it all in one go? So like, let's take an example of um, uh, statins, right? Uh, statins are a tremendous drug and a medical breakthrough and have increased lifespan and quality of life by a really meaningful amount. Now, don't ask me to quote the objective measures because you know, I don't keep those numbers in my head, but it has been net positive and there's a huge consensus around that. However, for us as a society to be able to go and, and get that kind of breakthrough requires a, like compound investments in tools and processes and people and universities and networks. And that is a culmination of all of that. But when it comes to something like software, you can break apart the, the compounding effect and tackle really big problems 10 years from now or even five years from now or two years from now with software. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Data Binge podcast, where we have discussions with technologists and business leaders focused on the human relationship with technology. And if this is your first episode, you'll find the conversations really center around how to accelerate human productivity and impact through everything, including the business capabilities that are opening up via cloud computing. So think of building digital twins of assets in the cloud and running data through them for a more holistic view of how planes, engines, and factories operate, all the way to the implications of building more diverse AI. We just did an episode with the senior designer for the Microsoft HoloLens and how mixed reality is being used to help meet the skills gap in high-tech workplaces. We really cover a fascinating subset of topics, but it's not just about the tech, it's about us. It's about how each of us perceives the world, what we're challenged with, how we learn, and how these concepts are accelerated through the technologies that are top of mind for business and for our society today. Today's episode features Anuj Bhatia, and I had really been looking forward to having Anuj on the podcast for some time. Actually, when I was thinking initially about developing this podcast and sharing some of the learnings, I thought about Anuj and how valuable it would be to share his voice and have a fun conversation with him about how he approaches problems, which turns out to be his wheelhouse. He's a problem solver, and we learn a lot about his approach and framework for this during our discussion. Anoush is currently a principal architect for cognition and AI at Microsoft with a tenure slightly exceeding three years. Anoush came into Microsoft with a Xamarin acquisition where he spent five years in customer success for their strategic accounts team. If you're not familiar with Xamarin, they were a marquee Microsoft partner that sold tools to help developers who use Microsoft products build applications for Apple's iOS and Google's Android mobile OS, helping to establish a stronger Microsoft presence in the world of mobile. So as you can imagine, some tremendous experience in mobile app development for Anoush. He was a lead architect for MCS Group for some time. So he developed mobile app strategies for iOS and web apps used by emergency services responders. He's got some experience in bioinformatics engineering and brings with him a BS in microbiology and virology from the University of Texas at Arlington which is super interesting. And you'll definitely hear why this subset of experience for Anuj is important to how he approaches and solves problems. You'll hear that in the discussion. Across the episode, we talk about what he and his team are hyper-focused on today. 
which is helping customers accelerate applications of AI, not just the modeling, but the translation into edge technologies. So things like sensors and autonomous objects, including applications such as mixed reality as part of this edge technology portfolio to every additional use case in the mobile space and beyond. We talk about code as leverage, which has been the crux of innovation in the software world for the last 10 years when you're thinking about Uber and all these different startups that are going unicorn and the incremental and compound effects of how problems can be solved through iterative software development. So why that iterative software development where many, many, many folks can touch lines of code, make them better, and in aggregate, make this way of approaching these kinds of solutions far less resource intensive compared to perhaps solving for big diseases or otherwise with analog processes of how big universities and corporations typically deploy people and money against problems. So code as leverage was a, a big takeaway from the conversation. We spend time on problem solving all up how to break apart a problem in digestible pieces for a more realistic opportunity for solutions, the importance of clarity and communication. We talk a little bit about the culture in big cities and how this applies to the topic of problem solving, why the Bay Area is a hot place to be right now and what additionally may change in the future based upon the most top of mind needs for humankind. We talk about leading edge capabilities in AI, the world of computers that can see, hear, and touch Generally, what this means for business and the scope of data generation and the fidelity of machine teaching. We talk about how all of this is leading to a further democratization of AI and why developing today's very, very, very hard tech will be very, very easy to deploy for the citizen techie tomorrow. Finally, we talk about one of my favorite things, the topics and the areas that Anuj struggles with and how he tries to attempt to utilize every single moment, every single transaction with another human as an opportunity to extract value for others and to empathically create a deeper connection with his fellow human. Being less like a robot and generally more like a genuine human thinker. And we talk about why this is so hard for all of us in terms of the, the amounts of applications and instant messages and emails and text messages that we're exchanging on a daily basis. It's very easy to just think and act like a robot. This is an awesome conversation. And I think generally many people listening can relate in a lot of ways to our discussion and the way that Anuj perceives the world. I certainly got a lot out of it. If you haven't already, please leave a comment about the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps me better circulate the content so I can better serve you through great guests and conversations. The episode is also available on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, and Google Podcasts. Now I bring you Anuj Bhatia. Hey Anuj, how are you? Hey Derek, how's it going? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and, and, and just some, for some quick reference, you and I know each other. Um, you're in an organization at Microsoft called the Global Black Belt Team. And yeah. I'll let you get more into that. But we were uh, working with a customer in healthcare. I won't get too uh, specific. And they were having some interests in trying to equip their doctors with the ability to, on the fly, talk about certain symptoms and things in kind of a, in a, in a room, a patient room setting. 
and have some of the equipment and systems and some of their homegrown technology capture a lot of that voice and a lot of that data, capture it, uh, run analytics on it, provide insights, and just enhance the patient experience. And they wanted to collaborate with that uh, with a, like a, a mobile device kind of setting, tablet, and some stuff that we just couldn't handle. I reached out to you immediately realize that you're just a phenomenal resource in the space of, of mobile app development, AI capabilities. You extended the team out, brought some really great resources in. We were very successful with that customer. And I really made a note that you're just exceptionally good with the customers. You have a great voice. You're a listener and you can take apart problems really well. And that's why I have you on the podcast today. I'd love to get in your brain. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, my name's Onage. I come to some Microsoft uh, via acquisition, um, but primarily I'm interested in uh, those really juicy, meaty problems that don't align to a specific product or don't have a well-trodden path. And so I really kind of like incubating things, figuring things out, um, really investing myself in sort of those things that nobody has really quite figured out. and. Um, that's kind of why I think, you know, you and I work together really well is because you kind of invest yourself in a project or in a customer. And, and um, I also made a, a very, a med, like a very big mental note. It's like Derek's the kind of person who, if I call him and ask him a question, he'll like immediately move things down in his calendar by like 35, 45 minutes and be like, let me just, let me just make some time for this because this is, this is like a really deep question that I need to invest some time in. And I always appreciate that. So I love how you, how you bring yourself to that, that, um, that level of conversation, that level of investment. So, um, but what I do at Microsoft is I, um, I guess we call ourselves GBB, but we really focus on incubating technologies and aligning ourselves to businesses that um, are either gaining momentum or are just about to gain momentum. And so we work on things like um, a while ago before Kubernetes was a huge thing. We started incubating that business. Um, uh, This last year, we've been starting to think about um, how we, how we help customers accelerate applications of AI as opposed to just pure modeling um, and how that translates into edge technologies, whether that edge is a mixed reality headset or whether that's your mobile device or whether that's um, uh, ambient services that just live in the ether that customers and partners and, and users of your, of your system may or may not know they're engaging with, but helps enrich their life. Um, so any, any number of things, I know that's super abstract, but there's no, there's no market category. There's no product for what we're doing yet. We're trying to piece together solutions for customers and see if we can uh, replicate that across the industry. And you've been at you've been at Microsoft for about three years. Um, I'm just looking through your your LinkedIn profile. You were at Xamarin for seven years. You had some mobile engineering experience. I saw that you uh, went to the University of Texas down in, obviously in Texas, Arlington. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I went to grad school at the uh, University of Texas in Austin. So hook hook them horn. I'm sure you're not favorable of them. Uh, (laughs) And uh, you got a BS in microbiology and in virology. Yeah. And, but you're in technology today. Yeah. How did you make that jump? And just knowing who you are and how you approach problems, I can see why that makes sense. But it'd be great to add some color to how that's changed your perspective and, and, and how you made that jump to technology. Yeah. I mean, um, I give a lot of credit to my parents for buying me my first computer. I think 
that was kind of that inflection point. Um, but generally speaking, I've always like the the real sort of underlying reason why technology is kind of like this focus point for me in my life is because it's leverage. Um, like we were just talking about buying a house. It's like you're, you know, when you buy a house, you don't have to come up with the whole purchase price of the house anymore, right? You can kind of incrementally make your way there. With technology, you don't have to solve all of the world's problems in one go. You can incrementally get better over time and things can compound over time. So whether like this healthcare example or industrials and manufacturing or um, even a machine learning model, I don't have to get it 100% correct the first time. I can get iteratively better and presumptively get better over time without necessarily having um, the perfect solved answer. Now, if we're going to space, it's a little bit different because <laughs> you know it's a little it's a little bit riskier and things just have to work generally 100% of the time within some variance of tolerance. But um, I think for me, I was always interested in uh, number one. I wanted to be a doctor, um, and so I wanted to go out and get my MD and figure out where to specialize and spend uh, 20 years in school and all that. Um, but I realized that that assumes that I'm getting to sort of this perfect state, this credentialed board certified state. And uh, for me, it was really about the journey of learning. And so the journey of learning um, iteratively through technology was was kind of why I, I just switched paths in undergrad and was like, there's way more for me to tackle here um, as, as a team, as opposed to being an individual who specializes deeply in an area and um, and, and can only solve this one problem and then kind of have that that sort of um, lifestyle around that kind of task, which which is kind of why I think technology is, is so exciting for us now, you know, 20 years later, um, you can get much more leverage out of a line of code or hundred lines of code than you can get out of really anything else. Um, and so that's kind of why I'm attracted to it. It's so funny that your response, like instantly I was like, giggling to myself because I don't know if you have heard uh, Naval Ravikant. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so all the all the geeks, uh, especially in, in San Francisco, just love this guy. I, I think he's yeah. phenomenal. And he was on the, the Joe Rogan podcast. And I'll, I'll put a link to his content. He was on the Tim Ferriss podcast a couple times. Yeah. And he talks about exactly that, code as leverage. Yeah. And the importance of the, the, you, you build a line of code and the code can then be, you could put it on GitHub and tons of people can fork the code and build all kinds of different kinds of configurations and systems. But you can, if you, you can build it up to 60 to 70, 80%, someone else can finish it. You never have to touch it again. And it has this like infinitely scalable opportunity to do all kinds of amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, that perspective is informed by, let's say, the last 10 years of consumer startups, where you have very obvious network effects, and you can go raise $20 million Series A to capture a market. Um, uh, when I think about leverage in software, I think about, are you able to solve really, really big problems without solving it all in one go? So like, let's take an example of um, uh, statins, right? Uh, statins are a tremendous drug and a medical breakthrough and have increased lifespan and quality of life by a really meaningful amount. Now, don't ask me to quote the objective measures because you know, I don't keep those numbers in my head, but it has been net positive and there's a huge consensus around that. However, for us 
as a society to be able to go and, and get that kind of breakthrough requires a, like compound investments in tools and processes and people and universities and networks. And that is a culmination of all of that. But when it comes to something like software, you can break apart the, the compounding effect and tackle really big problems 10 years from now or even five years from now or two years from now with software. And, and there's like these emergent phenomena that happen around that that I don't think you can get unless you have these rigid structures like in pharmaceuticals. You can, get, you can get sort of a much more collaborative, flexible way to achieve that same magnitude of effect. Um, and we're starting to see that in our industry uh, without necessarily having to invest in large buildings for universities or having to invest in large networks of academic collaboration, which we certainly should. Um, but I think software gets you much, much further than you would if you had just invested in atoms um, and, and you can go further with just the software. And I'm, I'm assuming... I mean, that's a very specific value proposition for leverage. And I, I've never thought about that before. And obviously, is that, do you think, obviously it comes from your your uh, biomedical background. Um, when you're approaching problems, how does that come into play? Like a, a customer has a problem, um, you have an application that has a problem, technology has a problem, you're trying to focus on challenging it, where does that system of reference come into play as you start to approach that problem? Yeah, that's a, that's a super interesting question. Immediately to my mind, um, especially in my role as an architect here, it's really about breaking apart the problem and teasing apart, like number one, what is the actual truth of what somebody's trying to do? Whether it's an internal engineer at Microsoft or whether it's somebody who uh, is on the customer side, what are we actually trying to do? Are we, and is it a symptom of um, something that isn't the actual job to be done? Or is it a symptom of like an innate existential need? Or is it strategic in the sense that nobody's gonna knock, nobody's gonna notice um, if it doesn't work, but boy, if it does work, it's gonna be huge, right? In the sense that there's that willingness to make a bet and take some risk. Um, and so breaking apart the problem at the philosophical level and then breaking apart the technical constituents of that problem and then further subdividing them into areas of expertise and tasks, I think is kind of where that mindset comes from. It's like, if you can do that, you can and, and sort of create um, a curve of progress and have that curve be up and to the right as fast as possible, then, then and with software, I think you can get really, really far. Um, that doesn't mean that hardware isn't important. Um, I think it was Steve Jobs who, who um, coined, or actually one of his uh, predecessors who coined the phrase, um, if you really want to um, learn how to build good software, you should learn how to build good hardware. Um, I remember uh, watching a video of Steve Jobs coining that term. I, I might have been Alan Kay. Uh, anyway, um, uh, yeah, that, that really resonated with me. But I think either in either case, teasing apart what are the constituent components of the problem is something that I think good engineers do really well, um, especially as they sort of graduate in their careers, because you can't, it's just too much complexity. You can't solve like your brain can't handle that much complexity all in, in its state space at once. You kind of have to do it incrementally. And so it's that crawl, walk, run mentality. And it's, and it's it seems like, I mean, I think good engineers think of, it, it seems like it always comes down to that funnel of looking at that specific problem 
And um, I, I was just bringing up some some information while you were talking about that. The the, the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency DARPA, mm-hmm. um, former uh, DARPA director George Hale Mayer. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right. The Hale Mayer Catechism. I don't know if you've heard of that before. No. A friend brought that up to my 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 attention when he he had kind of an idea about some software that he wanted to build, and he was talking to me about it. And it's essentially, and I'll send this to you. It's essentially these these different uh, different like basis points of how you approach a specific problem. So it, it starts off by, and this was, he coined this in 1975 to 1977. He was a director there. But what are you trying to do? Articulate your objectives without using jargon. How is it done today? What are the limits of the current practice? What is new in your approach? How do you think it will be successful? Uh, who cares? If you are successful, what difference will it make? What are the risks? And it's like there's always that solid framework to approaching things, and it seems like again, people who really are mindful and they're allowing themselves to really grasp the problem kind of approach it the same way. So I really appreciate that you you approach problems in that way. What are you good at? Like, what's your if let's say like, and you said you like to kind of you you kind of like to approach these these hard issues, these hard problems. You like to incubate things. If someone came to you and said, "Hey, Anuj, like, what are what are you good at? What's your deal? You know, if you had like a like, a, like one of those like X Men cards on the back, would it be like strength ten, integrity ten, like skill? You know, like what what would that look like for you? Um, wow, I think that for me, I think that I'm good at two things: um, getting people enthused and excited about something. Um, like, uh, oftentimes, uh, when you're at a startup and this is a function of me being at a startup, oftentimes you're just given this problem and it's like, if we don't figure this out. It's existential. And for me living through that experience, I think that what I've kind of become good at is getting people, um, removed from it being existential to it being a problem that you can actually solve or an opportunity that you can tackle. Um, and then, Ideally, um, I would like to be better at creating clarity around that. Um, I think really good leaders are able to not just get people excited um, and go actually execute, but create clarity around that. So there's not a lot of wasted effort um, and a lot of unnecessary exploration. Not that the exploration isn't really you know part of the journey, but um, one of the areas I think I'd like to really get good at is creating that clarity. I, and I think people get better at that over time. I don't think anybody is innately born with just being a really clear thinker, writer, communicator, operator. Um, I think that happens kind of organically as our, our mental models get better. Um, so like some of the best salespeople I know, some of the best executives I know walk into a room and ask a really dumb question. And to everybody, to every other engineer in the room, it's like, what is this guy doing? He's like walking in um, and it's always, and I'm like smiling because it exposes the gaps in his or his or her organization. It exposes the team's biases. It exposes the things that um, actually need to be done that haven't been solved yet um, and haven't been articulated yet. Um, and it starts kind of a tenuous conversation. Um, so I'd like to really get good at, you know, creating clarity. One of the things I need to really get much better at is asking questions. Um, I think I'm really good at 
having my model translate into questions, but just asking questions that um, expose and have empathy on the other side of the table. So like that's kind of um, where I'd like to, where I'm good at and where I'd like to get better at for sure. I've noticed, and, and I think this is just something that's very hard to do, like you, like you said, and every single day I'm trying to, A, pay more attention because it's easy just to get distracted and start, you go off top, you're all of a sudden you're checking email, you're on LinkedIn, you're all these, your phone, everything. And then you realize that you're not paying attention and then you like recalibrate, but it's not just like one recalibration. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes it's like, you know, every four minutes, like you have to almost have like this interval recalibration, like constantly like rechecking it. And I've noticed that, that the more you do, it's almost like a muscle Mm-hmm. in terms of how you pay attention. And then in, in terms of how you're asking questions, it's also like a muscle because you don't want to ask bad questions. Like it sucks to ask bad questions, especially on a call in a meeting. You're supposed to be the guy or the gal and you're asking these questions. But it's almost like if you can just just be confident in the fact that, hey, maybe if I show, maybe if I show my weakness, it'll bring us closer the people that are talking on the call or the meeting, it'll bring people closer because now it's almost like I'm talking about my kids or I'm talking about my personal life. If I'm like, Hey, look guys, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Like, can you better explain this? And it almost, it's like people slowly start to lose that, that coat of arrogance and ego. And I have to be the best. And it brings people closer together. That's something I also think I have to work on a lot. As well. Yeah, and, and oftentimes that's not something that's in your control, right? It's a it's an externality. Um, so, like uh, my old boss is German, so I can't I can't pronounce the name, but it roughly translates into finger feel, like um, finger gitchenspiel, I believe it's. I, I'll, I'll do my best, to, but um, <laughs> basically what it means is like this ability to have trust in like an intuition, uh, an, almost an intuitive trust around your partners and what's happening around you like your your perception of the world so like um if i walk into a room and i don't have psychological safety and trust in my peers and my leadership then it becomes incredibly difficult for me to expose a risk um similarly when i do have that uh, intuition and intuitive trust in the leadership and the team often as i do when i'm walking into a customer meeting with you it it it's a different thing it, it, there's not necessarily clarity because there's a lot of uncertainty often in these kinds of situations, but you're working towards something without necessarily having to worry about the coordination cost or the ego or, or really any negative externality that could possibly get in the way. It's just a, a really tight knit working group. And I think that's part of the reason why um, startups are often so successful is they may not necessarily have the right answers. They might even be able to ask the right questions. But their edge is effectively, can they intuit around the problem such that they don't actually have to worry about all the things a big company does when they have to solve a problem, right? They just have this implicit trust in the other person's skills, their capabilities, their ability to communicate and reason about the issue that it's much faster to resolve it than it is to, um, than it is to say, no, we're going to put this on a Kanban board and you know, maybe create a pipeline around this. Maybe we'll reconvene. Uh, next week when, you know, um, Rebecca's back from vacation, et cetera, right? Like it's just, it, there's the feedback loop is just so much tighter. I've never heard it put that way. You're 
I need to underline that you're you're over in in San Francisco. You've been mentioning startups, obviously things which is operate differently in your part of the world. You're part of California <laughs> in terms of technology. Let's just call that out. Like I'm in SoCal, things are a little different. I'm sure it's a lot more different in Iowa <laughs> than it is, uh, you know, here. But you're talking about the overhead that a particular team has to pay as they work together. Mm-hmm. Because they don't, because there's some social, there's some social um, capabilities that they just haven't built yet, mm-hmm. and because they haven't built that, and they may never build build that, they can't move as quickly or as nimble as you would say. Some of these startups that you're seeing are, are where there's smaller groups, people who've been working together longer, where trust is built. Yeah, for sure. That's 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 a really cool insight. And I have some friends in San Francisco and I'm always, I'm so, you know, I get on calls with them and I see what they're wearing and how they're talking, where they're at. And it just seems like a completely different culture. When you think about a technology and, and Seattle has its own culture too, right? Like you talk to someone in Seattle in Redmond with Microsoft is, is based, Amazon is there as well. It's got a completely different technology kind of culture feel. Can you describe what you see in San Francisco in that area in terms of, of being a technologist and what is an what does a regular day look like for you in terms of your if in your in terms of your like your journey map because I know it's different from anywhere else in the world I'm just trying to to get folks that are listening and myself as well to understand like what is different about that city that part of California where so much so many great ideas are born. Um, I think so for me, I would actually um, contest the notion that the Bay area is actually special in any way other than um, agglomeration of talent. Like it's just a place where people congregate um, around a specific type of economic activity for some reason. I think that as a function of me over the last, let's say 10 years, traveling more inside the United States, like what people would call quote unquote flyover states. I think there's more similarities in like the way people communicate what they actually want um, and how they reason about solving technological problems, but also just problems in their community and problems in their household, et cetera. I think that it's very similar. It's just that the dynamics of the economic activity bleed over into the culture and communication style and the dynamics of that culture and communication style bleed over into the economic activity, right? Who you are as a person and who you are as a professional aren't, can't be completely distinct. They overlap somehow. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, I think that this area, like the Bay area is special in the sense that um, people willingly uh, escape cool 70 degree and sunny weather to sit inside of an office building and and in dimly lit <laughs> conditions to write code all day or communicate and, and collaborate around problems and then it's cold outside the fog rolls in it's cold outside by the time they leave like they they are in paradise and they elect to uh go and use their brains to solve problems and and build things i think that's that's kind of the only oddity about this place uh, other than some of the, the the leverage dynamics but i think in general when I go to Minnesota or when I go to Columbus, Ohio, or when I go to, you know, Missouri, um, I think people generally want the same things. They generally 
want to get better and be more thoughtful about how they solve problems in whatever domain. It's just that for some reason here, there's been some, um, there's been some big public successes uh, and some big public failures, which, you know, people generally tend to forget. Um, but I think the iteration cycles are probably just a little bit quicker here. Um, and, and that has actually not always been the case. I think that software has enabled us to do that. But if you go back to Detroit um, in the, you know, in its heyday, um, their ability to iterate on transmissions um, was probably yeah. pre- pretty good, right? Compared to everywhere else in the world, like they probably, except for maybe Japan, had some of the best transmission technology in the entire world. Um, and that has kind of declined as a function of the demand for year over year net new motor vehicles. And, but that's just a function of where we are in um, uh, our evolution uh, in technology. It's not, it's not a reflection of the culture of Detroit. It's just what the world needs right now and what they want. Right. So I think, I think that's kind of dynamics at play. You're so right about that overlap of like the person and the, uh, the worker or the knowledge worker or what have you. I did a, a quick internship at Fiat Chrysler uh, automobiles in, yeah. in Auburn Hills. And yeah. when I was grad school and I don't talk about this anymore because it was you know, a couple of years ago, but it was just, it just blew my mind because I had my first time ever being in Michigan. Uh, first time 100% being in Detroit. And obviously you have these massive old businesses and, uh, just huge networks of engineers and super talented people that have been making these businesses prosperous in the last, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. Yeah. And going, going through the parking lot at FCA was like, it's not like you just had the engineers working on really fast cars. Like you look at the parking lot and they had its own designated parking lot for specifically FCA cars. And you had like incredible Jeeps and Corvettes and people would come in and say, this is my weekend car. Like that, like you could tell like, yeah, they're engineers and they're working on transmissions and they're working on engines and things like that during the day. But they leave and they're getting in a hot rod, (laughs) you know, and it's it's, it's a complete over, it's a complete overlap. And I guess to your point, like that's exactly how it is in, in the Bay Area. People are, they can't help but get away from the, what they're doing from nine to five all day. And that's the kind of people they are at night and they're continuously sharing ideas. And, um, that overhead is, is just thinning out in terms of things getting nimbler, I suppose. Yeah. And, and I'm actually um, interested in this question. Um, and given that you come from that industry, I mean, for whatever brief a time, I'm interested in this question, which I think Jeff Bezos asked, which is like, what are the things that will not change in 10 years? Right. Like, um, People will still want to come home and feel safe. People will still want uh, low-cost products uh, in their daily lives. People will still want convenience. They will still want you know, any number of things. And I spent $160 plane ticket to get here. It's probably going to be roughly around that price to leave here. Um, and the next city that defines what the world wants um, may not be San Francisco. And it the the the, the cost to switch over to a new place that can build that thing that the world wants is going to be marginal. So the question is really not what San Francisco is particularly good at right now, but rather over the next 10, 20, 30 years, what will the world want and who has the leverage and the edge to go deliver on that? 
I think that's kind of what the world is asking right now is like, should we have put all of our bets into companies, large tech companies based on the West Coast who control demand, who control um, technical talent, who have um, network effects and ability to gather data, which are um, much like the kinds of effects in um, the oligopolies that you saw in Detroit um, over the last half century? Like, do we want that or should it be more spread out? Should there be more competition? Um, I think those are the kinds of questions people are more curious about rather than like, what is the day of a, I mean, you can go on YouTube and search for day in the life of a, a San Francisco engineer or San Francisco tech worker or whatever. And there's like so much content out there that is kind of trivial and very shallow and surface level. I think what people are really curious about is like, why is this, like, if I were to, you know, graduate from college, why would I come here? Like, is my life going to be meaningfully better? Um, are the people that I'm going to meet going to inspire me? Am I going to be able to build a, a family here that will, that I can be proud of? Um, and why is this place more special than any other place in the world? I think that's what people are actually trying to ask. It's just that they, you know, go on Instagram and they get lost in the, the pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge and um, the, the salaries that, you know, come across the CNN newswire and, and all that. And I, I mean, that's just kind of noise, right? Like people, people want the same things. People generally have the same views about a lot of different things. Why is this place special? I think is, um, is really a question that people are, are really revisiting, I think. Yeah. And I'm, I think by nature, I'm a relationship person. You probably know that about me. Like I, I like to cultivate relationships. I'm good at it. I've spent a long time doing that. I enjoy it. And one of the things I learned when I was in grad school, I had a, a professor talk about, and I think it was like entrepreneurial something, technology innovation or something like that, where he was talking about when you have a technology, an idea, you get a patent on, on that technology and you could approach different technology centers at universities. They essentially, universities buy up mm-hmm. patents and just keep a library of patents. And the whole premise of the class was it's very easy as an entrepreneur to go and seek out those patents, pay very a very, very cheap cost for them based upon what it can do. And then you build a business plan around that and then you could, you go to startup. So the entire class was about that. It was incredibly powerful. Not that I, was, I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I wanted to understand that kind of vantage point. And the key to all of that, the key was ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And, and this was in Austin. And he's like, it's a better idea to start a, a technology business in Silicon Valley and in Austin per se than it would be in all these different places. And this is why you have the ecosystem, you have the, you have the, the universities that are coming out with these patents or cultivating these, these patents and people that could build coders, engineers. You have the patent lawyers that are now moving to this area because of the university you have businesses that are now growing in this area because they understand that the talent is coming. Ideas are being born. If the weather is good, like it is in Austin or San Francisco, now you have very, very good professors and um, researchers that want good weather, you know? So they come to the university mm-hmm. and it's like the slow build out of this ecosystem. And I absolutely loved that very concept. But to your point, what determines the next ecosystem, you know, like what, what will make the, what's the next ecosystem, the next 20 years going to look like, you know, Amazon, what are they making another headquarters someplace? What is that going to do to the city? I suppose that's why all these different cities are fighting over Amazon building a headquarters in their backyard. I think that's just critically just 
really cool stuff to talk about. So in, in the area of technology trends, and I know you're very interested in technology, and, I, and just to kind of tee you up, I was kind of looking through some Gartner statistics, and, and Gartner was talking about the top strategic technology trends of 2019. Some of them were like super fluffy, like quantum, you know, quantum compute. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> let's, kick, let's kick that out. That's not only want to talk about. Right. But some things are pretty cool, like autonomous things, uh, augmented analytics. So uh, by 2020, they're saying more than 40% of data, data science tasks will be automated. And we're seeing that with you know, the citizen data scientist and programs like AutoML that could run through a fully automated PaaS service that runs through data and, and comes back with insights and helps you understand how to build models through that. AI-driven development, which is kind of the same on the same token. And, and what you, I think, are, are very interested in is edge compute and the pendulum of edge compute going from centralized compute to distributed compute and back again. Uh, what's your favorite trend? And, and I'd love to open up a little bit about what you're seeing there. Um, yeah, I mean, in the realm of technology, there's so much. And even in the realm of AI, there's so much going on and it moves so fast. And um, I like to say that my day job is keeping track of it. And my spare time is helping customers because <laughs> it's one of those things where you could literally spend eight hours a day just studying this. Um, and I mean, like for me, I think the area that I'm specifically interested in is this notion that computers can see and hear and feel and speak. And when I say feel, I mean touch. Um, that is super interesting um, because not only does it have implications in um, the realm of consumer, like, the way that consumers interact with products and how they consume products and the kinds of products that they want and distribution, et cetera. But it also has like, um, it's also an input to how producers and um, the, the folks that actually generate products and create products think about the costs associated with their products. How much can they get for a given unit of input? Um, so I'll give you an example. Um, one of the things that I think in Microsoft that uh, in any technology company is if you're doing AI, the data is the hard part, right? It's the modeling that is is expensive, but generally that's um, that's kind of a creative exploitative thing. But unless you have the data and it's annotated, et cetera, um, you're not going to get super far. And, and that might change, um, uh, especially as the techniques change. But right now, one thing that, I think people are underestimating is what if we could use AI to um, generate data and then use that to increase the accuracy of the model. So for instance, um, synthetic data. Yeah. Like synthetic data, but also generated data um, that is based off of real data. Um, So for instance, like right now, uh, like if I, if I have a hall lens or if I have a, a mobile device or, you know, next generation heads up display and I want to see what's in my world, um, and I actually want to be able to, to the centimeter, understand what's going on there. Well, that requires um, hardware, and it requires humans to go walk around this space. Uh, so actually, a good example of this is the new Google Maps AR experience. Like, So for those of the folks who aren't familiar with it, um, Google Maps is generally like you get in your car, you plug in the address, and in 2D, it routes you to where you want to go, right? But let's say you're in a major city and you're walking about. Um, Oftentimes, there's noise from buildings that reflect your GPS signal, and 
um, your ability to get precise location is tough. So what the folks at Google did was they basically had um, they had people walk around cities and then capture images of buildings in various lighting conditions and weather conditions. So you can actually hold up your phone like this and see the field of view, and it will tell you where your closest Starbucks is or where your closest target is or wherever you need to go. And it will guide you not just in a 2D plane where you're literally looking down at your computer, but the computer is actually a display that's guiding you overlaying the information in your real world. Um, and that to do that is a, a combination of techniques and it's a consumer class experience. But in order for them to get the data about all the different points of view within a city um, and recognize without actually knowing your location where you are based off of just what building is in your field of view or what artifact is in your field of view um, is a tremendous data acquisition and annotation problem. And I, and I don't think that's talked about enough for Google to go build that experience was a monumental effort in data capture, data annotation, data curation. They had to know where people are based off of where the image is and what was in the image. And to do that millions and billions of times over is a very expensive task, not just in terms of computation, but just humans sitting there and annotating um, and then algorithms augmenting them. Um, and doing it quickly, I, I presume. If, if you're going to use it, it's got to yeah. be pretty quick, right? Yeah, not just in terms of the annotation of the data, but also in terms of the latency for the consumer experience. So like, you've got to have the computer call to a cloud service, but also do a lot of stuff on the mobile device to be able to get sort of Google Maps augmented reality. Uh, and, and it just, you know, it's just starting to roll out and people are going to be like, holy cow, this is, this is super cool. Um, and it'll, you know, much like when AI was being marketed as the end all of everything, um, it, it will start to spark more conversations about what can we do if computers can see? What can we do if computers can overlay information in our world? Um, and how can we use that for consumer scenarios and enterprise scenarios alike? Um, I think it'll take that one sort of one sort of proof point about what's possible for people to start that conversation. I think that'll be one of those proof points, much like um, much like uh, we had when mobile first came out. Is like Uber. Oh my gosh, you can use the GPS data, the application data, and the network to all sort of coordinate my location and what I want when I'm at an airport. I need to get picked up. That's amazing. Um, and now it's just like commonplace. Uh, but back then it was like. How did you guys do that? How did you how did you know where I was and where I wanted to go, et cetera, to the T? Um, I think that'll kind of be the kind of kind of discussion and discourse that happens next. When you said the data is the hard part, grasping the data is one of the, the toughest things to do. Sometimes you don't have the data that you need. And one of the um, partners that we've begun to talk to, eSmart is the name of the company, and I'll, I'll put the link in, in the show notes as well. And they work with utilities mm -hmm. and they have like a drone management platform. But the cool stuff is under the hood where they're able to fly a drone on a particular route based upon assets that a utility may have. And I think they're, they're a Norwegian business mm -hmm. and the, the really sexy stuff started coming out when their drone couldn't take a full image of the entire asset. And one of the stakeholders in the conversation was like, well, what if we don't have cycles to wait for the drone or what if the drone misses something? And they said, Oh, that's perfect because based upon all the data that we've gathered so far, we can build a synthetic model going back to what I was talking about earlier, a three dimensional synthetic model, and we can forecast with high accuracy what the rest of the asset will look like based upon 
the degradation of whatever we could see. Mm-hmm. And that just absolutely blew my mind. Like you don't even need the entire photo of the object or the image of the, of the object, video of the object, but you know with high accuracy what the back of it looks like. And, and, the, and the back of it could be rusted or burnt or degraded or destroyed, but you're still with high accuracy going to understand what that looks like. Right. And for me, that just opened up a whole new era of, you know, now you have, you have things like reinforcement learning and digital twins um, we're able to now, in a in a completely in a false environment, just go ahead and, and set up any kind of module, any kind of machine, run the machine, feed it data that you're highly accurate data that is doesn't exist, and now you're getting these outcomes that are real off of things that don't exist. Yeah. What's your like? What's your interpretation of how the hell we're even supposed to keep up with these ideas, and how we're supposed to help businesses use this stuff? Well, I think that people are already starting to have conversations about this. I mean, um, I heard this quote recently. It's like uh, about like, I'm kind of curious what other people's definitions of AI is. And I remember, I think it was Mark Hammond who basically described it as, uh, Mark Hammond's the the GM for our uh, machine teaching business. Uh, We recently acquired um, Bonsai uh, out in Berkeley, Berkeley, California, where we're uh, relatively close to where we are. and they do machine teaching, but he coined like when he was asked like what AI was, he was like, AI is kind of like um, a website in the nineties. Um, everybody, like everybody, really thinks they want one and 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 want to have one. Um, only half the people know what a website really is in the nineties, and then like one percent of the population actually knows how to build one, right? Um, and nowadays, like anybody can just type in squarespace.com on any device that's web enabled and start building their own website in 2019, right? So it took us a really long time to get to that point. Um, I think with, I think, and that's just um, a communications layer and a presentation layer. There's two discrete sort of technologies and a lot of stuff underneath that, but, but those are just two sort of the key distilled concepts about websites. Now with AI, you have like, Again, I don't think people get this, but like humans can, uh, sorry, humans can see, feel, perceive, speak, create, and and multitude of other things. Now, mm-hmm. machines are getting closer and closer to those tasks. And the way people are starting to see this is like with those deep fakes, um, where you have like Obama saying things that obviously Obama wouldn't say. And uh, you have like these celebrities uh, transitioning and doing, like, I think I saw this one yesterday where uh, somebody was doing a Tom Cruise impersonation and they literally had this person change into Tom Cruise in real time. Yeah. At, I saw that. And, and like these whole notions of like what AI can do. And I think what's happening is we've got to make it to where it doesn't take another 30 years before people are able to build the, the AI systems that they want. It'll be as turnkey as them articulating with clear dimensions what they actually want the solution to look like and um, us piecing together um, as to high fidelity as we can what the the human in the loop wants to have happened or maybe even not the human in the loop um, define some guardrails around that um, and then get the solution as close as possible and then say would you like to be able to customize this solution and so i think a good example of that is probably like 
um, a good breakthrough that we're having in this space is with machine teaching. Um, so if I had said I wanted a robot to grasp a, a coffee cup, so here in San Francisco we have this robot that can make coffee for you. Um, and I don't mean just like a vending machine. I mean, they literally <laughs> brew an espresso and a latte, et cetera. But the robot has to be able to grasp the cup. Now, for the engineer who built that robot, they had to build in rules for the robot to be able to grasp the cup depending on the strength, tensile strength of the cup, the material that the cup is used, used with, soft touch versus hard touch, um, aluminum versus plastic versus compostable, um, latte, the density of milk with lattes versus you know, drip coffees, et cetera. They had to build in all those rules. Now, what if I just said, I could, I could build a machine teaching system where all you had to do was define some simple parameters around what the, what the system needed to be, and we would kind of use computation to figure out the rest. Um, and some very advanced techniques under the hood, but but we would just give you um, a problem space that you could define. And if you can just define some inputs for it and um, help us guide the system as we need to, we can get you pretty close without having to really define every rule for and think ahead of time what the different circumstances would be. We can sort of be creative about it. And I think that's what's going to happen with this AI thing. It's going to be us empowering other people who are domain experts to not have to go learn TensorFlow and spin up distributed compute and training and inferencing and keep track of all this research, but rather make it as simple as, as um, you know, building a website in, in 2019. It seems like that's what I'm seeing in terms of how many people, the breadth, the wide breadth of people that are starting to be open to learning. And you say machine learning, you say AI, I think six to eight months ago, it had more impact in terms of this fear mm-hmm. where it's like, Oh, we're not ready for that. What, what does that even mean? That's, that's a strange, like anxiety, like insecurity. Now it's like, okay, well, like what kind of platform do you have to run those models on? And you're and I'm kind of like, Oh, okay. You got, you guys are open to this. Like, yeah, let's, let's, let's get our hands dirty. You know, my, my boss has okayed me spending X amount of time to learn about this particular, I'm starting to see a lot of trends about the culture, especially on the, de- on the developer side, start to go into this, into this realm of let's do this. Let's work together. Like help me become, I don't, maybe I'm not going to be a data scientist, but help me build the Lego blocks of whatever I need to know to be able to get these specific outcomes. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. And I think more so than that, I think the leaders of the businesses themselves are starting to realize that if they have this abstract sort of opaque point of view about what the outcome should be um, and kind of an uninformed or ill-informed view, especially when it comes to the ethics and data acquisition and annotation question, they are now starting to come back to us and say, we want to use face in this security context, but by the way, we want to spend more money to build a secure enclave for the model such that only the data about the face lives in that compute environment and nobody else can can recognize the face. We just tell the system like the accuracy threshold and then template it with the faces that we want to be able to enter this clean room. Um, and only those faces can enter. And because you know it's a sanitary condition, only surgeons that we've defined can enter this room with their staff. Um, but we don't want the compute to go to a cloud service. We prefer it stay at the edge and we prefer only that chipset have a secure system where it can only do that recognition. And they're like, oh, wow, like you thought through this um, and you understand the constraints and you understand the ethical implications here. That 
a year ago was not the case. Uh, I, I think that people are really starting to be more thoughtful about um, what they're trying to solve, what's possible, what's not possible, and then test us as you know implementers uh, and problem solvers on behalf of customers uh, to be able to say, well, what's changed recently? Like, here's my mental model for what's possible. Like, what, what's changed recently? Can you can you just update us on? Is this still a constraint? Is this still a risk? Is this still an opportunity? Um, they're, they're really starting to ask those questions on a more tentative basis as opposed to, can you figure out a way to reduce my cost by 50% by applying AI to the problem? Uh, and, and that has been really refreshing, <laughs> to be honest with you, uh, but also really challenging because now, they, now that the problems are becoming um, more clear, the the risks are higher that if they don't work or if they don't work accordingly to the plan that um, that the opportunity won't be grasped or the 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 risk of the solution getting out of, out of out of hand um, might have some adverse consequences. So that's kind of the the plus side as well as the 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 sort of daunting aspect of it. yeah, i I completely. And I'm trying to I'm trying to find an, an elegant analogy for this, and I just I don't think I can. But just from my personal experience, I've been working with some some businesses for quite a while, and we've tried we've gone down paths, and there's been failures. And I think some organizations are very robust in that robust and dynamic in that they understand how to get up and and dust themselves off and and go after it again. In some organizations, you lose the momentum because the project just took too long. Uh, they want some of the attributes of the problem and, and the solution to be on their terms. So weren't weren't open to some of those ethics and weren't open to some of those things that you're talking. So uh, you know, yeah. a year ago, the, kind of that attitude, and now you're trying to revisit because the problem is still there mm-hmm. and the excitement's gone. Yeah, and or you're starting to approach whether it be new organizations that are reaching out. And they're reaching out because they've tried this already before with someone else, like an IBM Watson or, mm-hmm. or you know, who, who knows, whatever. New, new leadership is in, is in play and they want to conquer this again. And it needs to be fast. It needs to be done. And they have some requirements. They know what they want. They know what they don't want. They have some new people on their team. And like you said, I love that because it's like, okay, now you guys, you skinned your knee. Now you're ready to really sprint at full speed, but also be cognizant of the risks, mm-hmm. um, which is a great situation. But now that there's some skin in the game, um, it's a little bit more serious and you have to, <laughs> yeah. you have to perform. Yeah. Um, not like this exploration, this fun, hey, let me, let me show you this AI capability on, on our, you know, our, we have all these different demos on our phones and like this right. like very fluffy, yep. easy stuff. They're like, no, we don't want to know that crap. Like we want to build <laughs> these specific kinds of models, and it, it it can get it can get crazy pretty fast. Um, so, I would really like to know, and you're just a wealth of knowledge in terms of. I, I think people that are going to listen to this, I hope that they understand the way that you think and the way that you approach things, because I really do think it's you're one of the, you're one of the best in class that we have in our organization. I would love to know how you or what you struggle with. What is something, and I, I know you mentioned earlier that creating clarity around things, but I'm very interested, and I think a lot of people are, are very interested in learning. Um, how, do, how do people learn? 
before we understand how you learn, I would love to understand, you know, what you inherently struggle with on a day to day or and it, it could even be personal. Um, it could be anything that prohibits you from operating at your very, very best. Yeah. Um, for me, I just have this inherent curiosity. And so my ability to time box things is really difficult. <laughs> and I think that every, everybody I know has this problem um, who, you know, there's never enough hours in the day. And so you might sacrifice an hour of sleep, which is actually super dangerous. I wouldn't, I mean, <laughs> go listen to Joe Rogan and, and Matthew Walker. Um, you'll, you'll be scared and, and not want to lose your sleep anymore. But, um, but I think that I need to get really much, much better at um, creating elasticity where it matters around time. Uh, like, like this situation right now, if this needs to go on for another hour, let's do it, right? If we really hit a stride on a specific topic and it's worthy of exploring, let's create that space. But um, I don't need to be spending 20 minutes on Twitter at 9 p.m. That, no. could, that could be five minutes. That really doesn't need to be 20 minutes. Um, that 15 minutes could be reading a book, spending more time with my wife and going on a walk. It could be any number of things. Um, so I think that for me, the way I allocate my attention, uh, I really struggle with. And I think that's just a common problem, especially amongst my peer group is um, we have a lot of opportunity and we have a lot of opportunity to learn. And uh, we have a lot of opportunity to not just consume content, but engage with, with people and with artifacts and technology and the world um, and go on camping trips and go on vacation. And it, like, regardless of your economic circumstance, you just have way more opportunity than you've ever had. So the focus is um, really to have that focus in terms of attention. So that's something I definitely struggle with. I also, um, I also have, um, I have this goal which is to start to build more communities in my life. Um, I think that's, you know, early on in your career as an engineer, you don't really think about teams and communities as a core component of your, like your system uh, and your goals and your process in life. Um, for me now, it's more and more important. I'm realizing that the things I want to explore and experiment with are going to, require me to have more empathy and build more communities and build consensus um, and build that enthusiasm. Um, and that's something that I wouldn't say I necessarily struggle with because I haven't really put all my energy into it, but that's something that I'm starting to work on and, and hopefully it isn't a struggle and hopefully that that's much easier than um, uh, as daunting as I think it might be. I don't, I don't think that it'll necessarily be as hard as I hope it is. I have the same, it, and and this must apply to a lot of people. This this maybe as as a man or a woman, as you get older, you want to like communities are more important because you have less time and you have more responsibilities, and you feel like you're you're losing that community. Or like I have this anxiety about something kind of similar, but the time boxing thing and the in the elasticity of opportunities, like. What what are you doing? And that sounds so familiar to me as well. Are there any practices that have worked for you? You you kind of mentioned, hey, like certain things, like you, maybe you have some principles, like I'm not going to go on Twitter at nine o'clock. Mm -hmm. um, hey, if I'm going to spend some time on a podcast with Derek, a lot a lot of social leverage there. We're built. We're kind of we're working on our community here, so 
I'll let that kind of go. But are there like general things that work? And you don't even have to follow these things because we all know that we know how to, we all know how to eat right, but we don't always eat right. <laughs> so yeah. what's your, do you have any feedback for people that struggle with that, especially people who are behind the screen every day building things? Um, for me, and I actually got this feedback from my manager very recently. Um, I, in a very specific circumstance, was impersonal. And I'm generally not impersonal, right? I'm, I generally throw my whole self in, and my authentic self, and sometimes to my detriment, <laughs> into a communication. And this one instance where I was impersonal, um, I got negative feedback from the person I was in person. And it was really just around scheduling a meeting, right? It was, it was something super simple. It's like 30 minutes on a calendar. And I was just like, yes, let's book it at this time. And, um, and maybe I was too terse about it, et cetera. And so I think my, my learning and insight from that was, and it wasn't actually like a huge problem. It was just like, I was not, it wasn't rudeness. It wasn't terseness. It was that I was being impersonal and inauthentic, right? I was just trying, like, I was trying to basically be Cortana, you know, like I was just trying to get yeah. the job done. And yeah. it was an opportunity to actually learn more about the scenario, to ask questions and build a connection with somebody who, um, who actually had insights into what that time was going to be spent doing. And I didn't actually be my authentic self and invest that time in an energy into the communication required to um, unearth that information and, and unearth that connection. And I made that mistake once and that's all it took because it's so important to me, right? Like generally speaking, if you ask for my time, my energy, um, anything I can give to you, kindness, empathy, uh, a warm meal, you'll get it, right? Because I'll do the best that I can and I'll apologize, I'll apologize profusely if for whatever reason it's not a priority or it's not something I'm particularly well qualified to do or I'll refer you to somebody I know. But for me to just operate robotically as if it, um, it seems as if that's, that it's okay to be inauthentic or it's okay to be impersonal is, is just something I've learned that people just get as close to 99.9% of your life where you're authentic and personal and you're, as, you're the best human you could possibly be. And yeah, you're not always going to get there and you might slip up now and again. Um, but as somebody who realizes that focus, time, attention, being personal is going to be more and more important, um, especially as technology replaces these tasks like scheduling, um, mm -hmm. let's just go do that. Um, and, and, and especially in like conversations online, whether that's through professional email, professional chat, um, uh, wherever you decide to engage and communicate, it's going to become more and more important that you have an, a tone of authenticity um, and a personal nature to what people see on that screen. Or, you know, uh, I, I want to also get better at writing more paper letters because I think that's super important. I think that's a it is. Um, something that, that, I, that I think people underinvest in. But like, that's kind of my advice to people who are struggling with this thing. Um, just, just really reflect and be purposeful and mindful around like, are you are you being yourself right now? Are you being um, not just personable, not just kind for the sake of kindness, but, but are you actually being you right now? Or are you being, you know, a scheduling assistant? Um, that, that's kind of, and, and, that's, and the scheduling assistant is just one example, but like I'm trying to make dinner plans with my wife. Um, probably not the best to talk about like what kind of meal 
um, we want to eat over text and like paste Yelp reviews. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's probably just better to pick up the phone and be like, Hey, um, I heard about this really cool thing. Um, this new restaurant that's popping up in a kind of seedy area, part of town, but I heard it's like the best Burmese food. Do you want to try it out? And she'd be like, yeah, that sounds actually really good. Okay, great. We'll talk. We'll, we'll meet it there at like after work. Perfect. Done. Yeah. And like with the communication thing, it instantly, and I mean, you know, at Microsoft and at other big companies, especially with our insane suite of productivity tools, like it's just so freaking easy just to like be pinging constantly. People can get a hold of you all the time. Yep. I'm sure you have your own tactics to evade <laughs> and like in, 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 you know, make sure you can protect your time. But I've noticed that in what you were just describing, I've done that before to try to see if there were better ways of me approaching things to save myself time mm -hmm. because, or how do I evade some of these particular people that I just don't want to spend time with because everyone has, or they, they are time wasters. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to waste my time and I know they're going to waste my time, the only person that doesn't know it is them. And that time is being taken away from really great customers. I want to talk to colleagues, mentors, people I'm mentoring, opportunities like this, and then essentially time with my family. And just thinking about that brings me into a very negative and hateful place where I then start to have these hateful, angry feelings about this person. And the more they try to get a hold of me, the more I try to evade and like not be myself. And it makes the entire situation kind of a negative situation. And I, I don't know if that's a that's part of what is going on in today's world of communication and digital communication, but you just can't escape sometimes. Um, so it's like, how do you, how do you be your true self all times when someone is trying to steal that true self away from you? Yeah, that's actually um, a topic I'm super interested in now that I work at a big company. Um, there's so much diversity of thought and diversity of approaches that sometimes it's difficult for me to let that be included as part of my mental model for, for how I want my time to be spent or, or how um, I'm thinking about approaching this, this specific project or problem or solution. Um, and so I'm trying to be more mindful of not necessarily um, evading, but necessarily creating the opportunity, like turning that into an opportunity. Like for instance, um, if I'm working on a project, I'm like, this doesn't really seem like something that we can help with, but they really want um, our team to work on it. Uh, and I'll basically be like, okay, let's, let's explore this, but let's, let's create a standard for what, like what kinds of information we need in order to be really, really effective for this specific customer. Uh, and so I create that opportunity and that time and space for that team to to really, you know, uh, represent their customer well um, and represent the technology well as well. Like sometimes we try to shoehorn technologies into solutions that really shouldn't be there, uh, and that's that's been true for for the history of of like the last twenty years um, and longer. Um, but for me, I really think that it's like. I need to, and this is particularly true for me, I need to stop thinking about things as there's only so much time and there's only so much of my time and there's only so much energy I can put into uh, a specific topic or issue or, or project, et cetera. But rather if I just think, okay, how can I take the extra 30 seconds 
instead of letting this psychologically tax me and be snarky about it in an email, as opposed to, okay, let me take the extra 30 seconds to write this email in such a way that it's an opportunity for the person to represent and um, try and represent their understanding of the situation as best they can. And then for me to provide my input once I'm educated on it and try to create that clarity. It, and I'm not particularly good at it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, but, I, but I hold myself to that standard, which is um, let's try and instead of it being like, oh man, I just don't have time for this. And, and I don't want to be rude, but rather how can I make this an opportunity for the other person to shine and actually unearth whether this is um, uh, something that, that has, you know, th that's there as opposed to something that's, you know, just kind of in the ether. I'm glad you shared those those models with us because I think it's something that we could all really focus on. I know we only have a, a, a few moments left. Do you have a favorite podcast? Um, I actually have a lot of podcasts that I like. Probably my favorite right now. Um, have you heard of Econ Talk with Russ Roberts? I, I haven't. No. Um, it is probably the one... You know, it's like everybody has a podcast app on their phone. And, you know, if you're just a voracious listener and reader and consumer like I am, like you, you just, you, there's some where you're like, oh, I don't really like that one. Uh, like the other topic isn't interesting. It's too diverse. But like Econ Talk is one of those situations where it is less about um, them representing a specific topic or a specific domain, but rather this person being curious about everything and really just, you know, kind of like a, a seminar on a specific topic for an hour or two hours and it's whatever that that uh, russ roberts is the the um the host name whatever he's interested in and whatever you know he's interested in that he wants to put on there and i think that he's a and this goes back to this topic of curation which we can get into later if we need to but i think he's an excellent curator of what's interesting to him and for me um that interest area certainly shines um i'm also i, I need to also expand my circle of competence beyond like technology and economics and finance and um uh the not like the, the non-fiction world into something that's more like storytelling and history and and um i've been trying to do that but i haven't really found something where i'm like man uh the song dynasty in china like like there's there's no podcast that's like super interesting that i found so if anybody knows of anything please let me know but like i would really like to explore um, areas outside of my sort of general circle of competence or repertoire that, um, that I really want to find, but I haven't really done that. But so, so I've kind of referenced curators like Russ Roberts who've been able to do that. And, and that's been a fantastic learning experience for me. I like to read a lot of nonfiction, and right now I'm on this finance kick and I'm reading like the simple path to wealth by JL Collins and Ramit Sati is, I will teach you to be rich. And I'm like, I'm just like super intensely, but not the best stuff to read before bed. Yep. And so I've had to mix it up. And Tim Ferriss was saying how he, I think he reads nonfiction for an hour before bed. And I don't have that kind of time for nonfiction or, or for fiction. I'm sorry. And he referred a name, uh, a book called The Name of the Wind. Hmm. And, and he was just like, oh, it's so good. And it's fiction and it's great. And I actually read that. And it's, it, it's such a great like escape for 30 minutes to, I would never read that kind of book, you know, Yeah. but just to get it to go and do that. It's a, it's a great escape. Okay. So last question, if you could solve any problem in the world or you, you wanted a really good attempt at solving that problem and you had infinite resources, but you only had seven days to do it, 
what problem would you try to to solve? Whew. That is a really well-worded question. Um, seven days. That's another one of the struggles that I have. I'm really bad at scoping things. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, interesting. I don't know that I have a good answer to that one, unfortunately. I don't think that, like, yeah, I don't think that I have a good answer to this one. I'll have to think back to it and email you. Um, I probably need to fix, uh, probably need to clean my house. If I could do that, if I could completely clean my house in seven days, that would be awesome. And it's pretty clean, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't think that there's a problem that is like top of mind for me that seven days would do. Um, yeah, I'll have to get back to you. Unfortunately, that's like, that's a really good one. I don't have a good answer. I don't know how I would answer that. <laughs> <laughs> perfectly honest with you. Okay, cool. Anush, thanks for joining the the podcast. This was a lot of fun and looking forward to working with you more in the future. Yeah, this is this is really delightful. How can folks get a hold of you? Uh probably the best way is to email me and put my email in the show notes and then I'm on Twitter at A N N A N O O J. Um uh DMs are open, etc. Like I I just love helping people with their projects, whether they're customers of Microsoft or not. Um, I'm always open to grabbing coffee or whatever here in the Bay area. Like, so if there's something interesting you're working on that you want to chat about, just feel free to reach out. All right, my man. Well, thanks for joining and, uh, you have an awesome day. Looking forward to talking to you again soon. Derek, this is a pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us in the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought forum where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.